So we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and last week we looked at peace, and um, it was a part one to like a two-part mini-series, and one of the aspects of the, the of fruitful peace we explored was this extending peace outward to one another. And as I started thinking about this, um, I started thinking about the times that that has not happened. And when I was a, a Marine, um, we I had just gotten back off of a six-month deployment, and there was a guy on... We were on a ship for six months, and there's this guy that, um, me and him just had this rivalry. His name was Wally, and I just, everything about Wally just bothered me. I don't know what it was, it was his mannerisms, he was just like, he was very particular, very, very um, detail-oriented. I'm not detail-oriented, and so it was just like, but it was more than that. We just clashed on everything, and so we got back, and... Um, and they decided in the, their infinite wisdom to room me and Wally together. <laughs> and so now me and Wally had to share a room. And so we came together and Wally had this, this, this habit. He loved model airplanes. And he would spend all night with his light on putting model airplanes together. And I'm, you know, I'm an early, I go to bed early. It's like 9.30, I'm ready to go to bed. He'd keep the light on, he'd put his model airplanes together. But then he would go a step further. He would go and he would hang them with fishing wire on, on our roof. So you'd have to dodge them in the morning and at the night and so on and so forth. And, and so one day as I was walking in late at night, one of them hit me in the, the face and I got mad and I smacked it down and his F-18 exploded on the ground. And um, it was really bad. Like I really didn't act appropriately. And I never confronted Wally. And here's the thing. Sometimes in church, we have conflicts and we don't deal with them in the right, right way. It's not a matter of conflicts going to happen in the church. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. We're all people. We're all sinners saved by grace. And so we need to make sure that we handle it appropriately in a biblical, um, healthy way. And unfortunately, sometimes as the church, we, we totally avoid conflict or we circumvent it or we deal with it in a way that's very unhealthy and unbiblical. unbiblical. But, um, and it damages the family of God. And instead, we're called in Scripture to be committed people of peace that pursue transformational relational reconciliation to the power of the Holy Spirit by the authority of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, nothing is wasted in God's economy, even our conflict with one another. God uses that for his transformation into Christ-likeness, our transformation into Christ-likeness. And if we cooperate with the Spirit in accordance to his word, we see this transformation happen. And this is especially relevant to us here in North Andover as our family here in North Andover grows and expands and changes. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And as we go and we approach this, this scripture, I just want to give a few observations before we, we dig deep into this. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is Jesus is, is speaking these things. And first what we notice is these are very specific and practical commands of Jesus. He speaks in parables most of the time, but this is one of the few times he does not speak in parables. We also see he gets straight to the point. Second, we, we see that this is one of the few times Jesus mentions the church and how to deal with conflicts within the church. And finally, we see that these instructions that we're going to go over are very simple. They're simple instructions. They're very straight to the point, yet they're difficult and they're rarely practiced. And in his book, Reconcile, John Lederach writes, 
um, a parallel version of Matthew 18, 15 through 20 called the normal practice version, version as he calls it. He says, this is the normal practice version of, of uh, most churches. When you have a problem with someone in the church, check it out first to make sure you are not alone in this problem. There's a good chance that if you have had a problem with this person, someone else has it as well. Go and pick a good friend who is likely to understand and agree with you. If he or she agrees with you that this person is a real jerk, then talk to, talk to, someone more, talk to some more people to see if there's a broader consensus. If money, land, or inheritance is involved, tell it to a lawyer because lawyers were given by God to keep the church honest. If a friend, a small group, and a lawyer agree, then tell it to the church, preferably in private, to the pastor and elders. When you tell them, say it is a concern that you have prayed about for some time and that there's a group of people who share your concern. Do not tell it openly to the congregation in a congregational meeting so that's volatile and it could, get, it could get messy. Truly I say to you, from that point on, it is the responsibility of the pastor and elders to take care of the problem. Your task is to make sure they do it right. And unfortunately, that is generally how we deal with it. But that's not the biblical way. That's not what Jesus has prescribed for us to deal with these things. And today what I want to do is I want to explore four practical steps to conflict transformation, not conflict resolution, but transformation, and four healthy commitments we need to pursue peace in our relationships here in the church. So let me pray and ask God to just bless our time. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us and teach us the things that we do not know. I pray for a softening of hearts. I pray for a stirring of hearts, and I pray that we would have a reaction to your word, because in reaction we change. And may we just follow you and what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, step one, go directly and discreetly. We see that fruitful peace requires direct confrontation. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is Jesus' command. And we're called to go straight to the person, discreetly, to admonish them for some sin that they've committed against you. Now, what if it's not against you? What if you just notice something or you, you are a witness to that and you're the, the sole witness? There's still a requirement for you to confront this person. Well, why? Why do we do this? Why don't we just let it go? Well, one, we're called to love people, and we want to make sure that that we love them correctly as God has prescribed, but we read it. It's if, you, if they've listened to you, you have won them over. The phrase you have won them over actually means you have literally saved them from falling into a pattern of sin. So we're called to confront people. Go discreetly, directly. Why? So that we could love them, so that we could save them. Maybe they're blind to something. But what is this requirement? The requirement to this is a commitment to a healthy confrontation. So commitment one is healthy confrontation. We see healthy confrontation starts with self-confrontation. Matthew 7, 5 says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We have to see the situation for what it is, and we have to recognize that we come into a situation with certain perceptions and presuppositions about the person or about the situation, and so we must confront ourselves before we confront another person. And as we prepare to confront another person, there's this, etern this internal process that forces us to deal with our own feelings, our anxieties, our fears, and our perceptions of the person or the situation. With my situation with Wally, I had to come to grips with the fact that I had certain perceptions of Wally that were not true. I was projecting a lot of experiences that I had with other people onto Wally. 
and it had nothing to do with him. And there was also insecurities that were involved. Me and him were, we were competing for a promotion together. And there were certain things that he was really good at, and I wasn't. And when we don't engage in this self-confrontation, this pro, you know, if we don't engage in this, it manifests itself in being defensive. Oftentimes, we we really feel this these our insecurities. We start to blame shift. Like I'm only acting like this because of this person. No one makes you act a certain way. We start projecting our emotions onto other people. And God uses this time of self-confrontation to really expose the idols of our hearts. So how do we engage in this self-confrontation? It really starts with just a vulnerability to the Holy Spirit in prayer. It's you going before God to say, God, expose my heart. And getting real with God. And the Holy Spirit, part of that whole, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to expose these idols in your life. And Christ has died for those things. We're called to empty ourselves before God. We have to recognize that healthy confrontation confronts fear head on. One of the people that I loved in the Marine Corps were Navy corpsmen. Navy corpsmen are trained to run into the, to a firefight and save people. They run right into the battle. And sometimes engaging a person who has sinned against you is often like running into a gunfire. gunfire. Healthy confrontation moves us towards a person who might actually be the source of our fear. And then it gets, it gets very messy. We might be going around and, and, and talking about other people doing the normal practice version of this method because we're afraid of them. So how do we deal with this fear? We have to remember that perfect love casts out fear. Jesus confronted the cross and he confronted us in love so that we could in turn love others. And we need to remember that we're not defined by the person, but we're defined by our relationship with Christ. I want you to hear that again. I want you to realize that you're not defined by the other person, you're defined by your relationship in Christ. That's your identity, that's who you are. Here's the thing, God in Christ is well pleased with you. Do you believe that? You see that healthy confrontation speaks the truth in love. Verse 15 says, go and point out their faults. This implies having a truthful, clear, cohesive reason to confront them. Not just because you feel a certain way. Not to discount your feelings, but there's facts that are involved as well. So how do you deliver this message really matters. Remember the person. If they listen to you, you have won them over. You want people to listen to you. You're going to them in love. It's all about speaking the truth in love. And this requires you to be truthful, not embellish the truth or use generalizations. I'm not saying you always do this because the person doesn't always do that. Or embellishing what actually happens. It requires clarity, not passivity. Be very specific about your issue with the person. I, I struggle with that. I like to beat around the bush sometimes. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't do it that way. And it's like, my, my wife Erica's like, just get, get to it already. Like, what's the problem? I'm like, okay, well, here's the thing. You know. So be clear. Don't be passive. And it requires gentleness and a, a safe space for the other person that you're confronting 
to interact with you on a heart-to-heart level. You're not, you really want to hear where they're at. You want, to, you want to hear that. It has to be a safe environment. That's why it's important that we start with the self-confrontation aspect of it, because you can't create a safe environment to have an interaction with someone and confront them in love unless you know how much you are loved by Christ. And here's the thing. When you get there, remember that you could win the argument but lose the person. They're not even listening to anything that you're saying. And here's the thing. That's, this is convicting me so bad this week. I, so I, I really, sometimes I really hate coming up and preaching every Sunday, you know, because God's like, oh, see how, see what you do, Brian? My normal approach is to have my, everything ready to go. Like, I have a court case ready to throw at whoever I'm going to confront. And before they even take up a breath of air, I'm like, bam, there you go. There's number two, there's number three, there's number four. Done. Microphone drop, I walk out the door. <laughs> but that's how it works out in my mind. And I go, and I'm sure they're going to get it, because I just laid out this perfect argument. It never works out that way, ever, because I'm not doing it in love. So what if you're the one being confronted? What if you're the one that's, that's, that's being admonished, that's being confronted? Well, there's four things I want you to remember. One, remember that the person that is confronting you is on your side. They're on your side. They're a brother or sister in Christ. They're on your side. Two, consider your feelings and your reaction to what you're being confronted about. Are you defensive about this? Are you blame shifting? God's using this to address some of your issues as well. And so go to him in prayer. There might be some validity to what is being said here. Three, own up but don't beat up. Own up to what you've done, but don't beat yourself up. Remember, God's grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't want you to sit there and go, I'm a horrible person. I'm a horrible person. I'm, 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 you're right, I'm, and then live in that. What he wants you to do is he wants you to cast it on the foot of the cross and say, your grace is sufficient for me, and live in that. That's the good news of the gospel. So own up, but don't beat up. And finally, remember that you are forgiven, but there's consequences. There's consequences. If you, if you sinned against someone, there's a consequence for that sin. You're forgiven, but there's going to be a change in the dynamic of that relationship in some way, somehow. So, what happens if you go to a person and they don't listen? Well, we move to step two, which is take one or two others. We see that fruitful peace requires a compassionate coalition. Matthew 18 16 says, But if they will not listen, if they don't pay close attention and respond, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established or confirmed or upheld. It really has this legal connotation by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And these are not actually people that witnessed what happened. It's just mature brothers and sisters in Christ that are there to walk alongside with you and the other person to discern what is happening and what needs to be done. So we see that as, as, as we walk through these steps, the, um, there's a widening of the scope of who is involved. And so now we have a smaller coalition, two or three others. But in order to make this happen, in order for this to work, you have to have a commitment to healthy accountability. You must be committed to healthy accountability. And people usually don't like the word accountability. So what is it? Healthy accountability provides freedom. The truth of Jesus often gets bound up by these emotional, emotionally charged situations. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're arguing with someone, and like you don't even know why you're arguing anymore. You're like, what are we talking about? 
You just know you're really mad and they're really mad and you want them to like, recognize that you're really mad and you're right and they want the same thing. Everything gets bound up. It's so emotionally charged. And the accountability of these witnesses, this, this compassion coalition, allows for a safe space so that people could engage one another. And I often see this in pastoral counseling. I'll bring people into my office and you know, you'll hear one side and you hear the other side and when you bring people together, it's like there's a safe space and people just let it go. And it's, it's really kind of interesting to see how the Holy Spirit works through that. And so it provides a safe space. And there's been times where I've been involved and I've seen people that brought an issue to somebody and they really thought that they were sinned against and they confronted the person. The person says, I don't know what I did. And so we've come together, and there's two or three others, and the person ends up, we end up finding out that that person never did anything to that person. It was a perception, a wrong perception of that. And so then we go and we say, there really is nothing here. And they go, you know what, you're right. I was blind to that. That person did nothing to me. Wow. And so we see that there's this accountability. We see that healthy accountability provides a broader pool of discernment, and discernment is needed in these situations. Human relationships are messy. Do I, I mean, I don't need to tell you that, right? You get it. Like right now, you're thinking of relationships right now. You're going, I could think about a time when this happened. I could think about what I'm going through right now. It's messy. And we need a broader pool of discernment. Proverbs 19.20 says, listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you will be counted among the wise. You also see that healthy accountability is transformational. God uses everything. It's not wasted. We're not trying to manage our conflict. We're trying to transform through it. And God uses that. Think about anything that you've ever gone through in your life that's been tough, that you've been afraid to do. And outside, at the end of that, you're a better person for it. God uses that. And he uses conflict the same way to transform you. And healthy accountability transforms those in the church as the Holy Spirit reveals how dependent and interdependent we are with one another. The fact is, is we're totally dependent on the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. But we're interdependent on each other. And God has given us, as the family of God, to help each other during these times. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, I don't like to get other people involved. It's none of other people's business of what happens between me and this person in the church. And I would say this, you're wrong. It absolutely is our business. Because it affects the whole family. And if you don't want people to get involved in your business, I would just say this in a, in, a lovingly, in a loving way, you need to get over it. We're created to thrive in community. If you, don't, if you don't embrace the community that God has given you in faith in Christ, you're not thriving. Maybe you're sitting here like, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the thing. God himself is a, is a trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's intrinsically relational and intrinsically a community. We are created for a relationship and to live in community. Well, what if you go and you bring these people, you have this coalition of people, and people still don't listen? This person still doesn't listen. Well, step three says, tell it to the church. We see that fruitful peace requires an even broader scope of responsible discernment. Matthew 18, 17 says, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. The fact is the church has a responsibility to get involved and discern what the issue, 
the sin issue is and what to do about it. We remember last week we talked about Philippians 4 and, and there was these two women that were having an issue. And what does Paul say to them? He says, in Philippians 4, 3, he says, I ask you, my true companion, help these women. It's our responsibility as the church to get involved. We can't expect that somebody else is going to do it because it's not going to happen. We're a family, and if a family member is hurting, we need to come alongside our family. So who is the church? The church is us. Look to your left and look to your right. That's the church. Some of you are not looking. You're not <laughs> we are the church. So the question is, is who, do we act, who do we tell it to? Because usually what ends up happening is tell it to the church is, it means you tell it to me. Or you tell it to Pastor John. And then it's like, okay, we're not the church. We are the church. So how do we do this? How does this look? It looks different in different situations. It depends on who it affects. There's been times where a sin, the sin of a person has affected the whole congregation, so you need to tell the whole congregation about that. But generally speaking, that's not the case. It would mainly be um, leadership in the church, and we would go ahead and deal with it from there. And if we, we would really discern what was, what was happening. But the, the key point is the scope of involvement with the church body gets wider. But in order to do this, we need to be committed to a healthy environment. The church must be a healthy environment for this to happen. A healthy environment is a safe environment. The church is supposed to be a safe place to have these interactive engagements. Sorry. It needs to be a safe place to have these, these, these interactive engagements. We have to remember that this isn't a witch hunt. If someone has fallen into sin and it gets to this point... We need to tell it to the church, it's not a witch hunt. We want to prayerfully discern what to do. When I was a Marine, I, I worked for this captain named Robbie Mitchell. And Robbie Mitchell was this tall, six foot four, big dude. And we went for, we did a, a hike. When I say hike, it's not a fun hike. It's like 100 pounds on your back, walking around super fast, doing all that stuff. And so Robbie was the, the captain. He was the officer in charge. I was a sergeant at the time. And he had all this equipment. He was trying to be the... The big bad officer in charge, and about mile number three, he started to fall out. And I was like, hey, sir, can I help you? You know, and he's like, no, no, I got it, I got it. And I'm like a pack mule. I could throw tons of weight on my back. Like, that was what got me through the Marine Corps was I could carry stuff. I'm not maybe the smartest guy, but I was the strongest guy. So that was good. And so I helped him out. And he finally relented. He said, sure, here you go. And here's the thing. We, we must remember that we're all on this journey together. And sometimes we need to lighten the load of the other person. And that's the job of the church. It needs to be a safe environment. People need to understand that. We see a healthy environment is practical and spiritual. You just don't say, you know what, I'll pray for this situation and that's it. And it's not that we don't believe in the power of prayer. It's just that we believe that when we come alongside a person or we get involved as a church, that this is practical and spiritual. As a church, we must be prepared to come alongside these people that are involved in this or person prayerfully and in a practical way, as long as it takes to heal the situation. We also have to have the courage to exercise healthy church discipline or both. And I said the word discipline and people are like cringing. I saw some of you are like, ugh. You have to say discipline. Listen, a healthy environment is one that is under the authority of Christ. 
So some of you might be sitting here and saying, what gives the church the right to insert themselves into anyone's business? It's not what, it's who, it's Christ. This is Christ's church. Matthew 18, 18 through 20 says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, that there I am I with them. Here's the thing. These verses, we always use that, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. The context of this verse is church discipline. We often use it like, hey, and missionaries use it a lot. I used it when I was on the reservation. Hey, we're here. And, that, and that's, a, that's great. It doesn't mean that that's not exactly, you know, that doesn't, that's not true. But in, the, in the, the, the context of what it's used for, it's saying that as the church, we have the authority of Christ. Because Christ's spirit is among us. Well, we must discern that. We exercise this authority by the power of Christ and the spirit of Christ. And this is not to be taken lightly. This is a family, and healthy families have healthy boundaries, and we discipline the ones we love. I mean, my children, I mean, those of you that have children, today's Mother's Day. If you have children, you discipline your children not because you love to do it, it's because you have to do it because you love them. And as a church, that's what we're called to do. God does that with us. So what if you go through this point and they still won't listen? Well, step four. We have to treat them as your frontline ministry. They become our frontline ministry at that point in time. Fruitful peace requires the church to be Christ-like in this. Matthew 18, 17 says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And really the connotation here is as an unbeliever, someone who does not believe in Jesus. So what happens? It means there's a relational, family relational dynamics that changes. This person that once was in your family is no longer in your family. And they've made that clear. What does this look like? Does this mean we just don't talk to anyone? We never talk to them? And I've seen this really go bad. I've seen it where you go and you say, I love you so much that we're never going to talk to you again. And that doesn't make sense to me. So we have to ask ourselves, how did Jesus treat Sinners and tax collectors. What we read in Matthew 9, 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus ate dinner with sinners and tax collectors. Unbelievers. But they weren't part of his family. They weren't part of his inner circle. So here's the thing. The person shifts from being a family member, which is there's a level of intimacy, to a frontline ministry. We have to remember that the mission of the church is to make reconciled disciples of Jesus Christ. But in order to do this, we must be committed to a healthy mission. So this mean, does this mean we just totally cast them off? We don't have nothing to do with them? We stop all communication? No, but the, the family dynamics changes. They're no longer in the family, but they become a ministry of the family. We see that we've been given the message of reconciliation. This is the most powerful message. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The whole point of this four-step process is to uphold the mission of making reconciled disciples in and outside the church. That doesn't change. 
If someone is in the church, but they decide that they don't want to be a part of the family by their actions through this, this four-step process, and they become our, 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 our frontline ministry, we still must uphold the mission. It's just our tactic changes. So what does this look like to be committed to this healthy mission? It means declaration of the good news of Jesus in word and deed. It means we preach the gospel to them. We preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because there's something going on in their, their heart that we don't know. So we preach it. We tell them that, listen, we, all, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But God loved us so much. Even though we deserved his wrath, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and righteous life. And he died on a cross. And when he died on that cross, he was just, he felt the anguish of the sin of the world that he was bearing upon himself. And it was the first time that he felt the wrath of the Father. And he died. But three days later, he was resurrected. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we are resurrected to new, to new life. We are reconciled to the eternal God, now and forevermore. And that's our message. And here's the thing. One day, we will stand face to face with our Lord Jesus. And all of this conflict that we've went through will make sense. They'll be worth it. Nothing goes to waste. So we preach that to these people. These people that are no longer in our family, but are our frontline ministry. We preach it with everything that we have. And then we show them. We eat dinner with them. We spend time with them. There's hard work that has to happen. And here's the thing. The Bible, whatever it says, is absolutely clear. It's 100% crystal clear. It's accurate. But it doesn't claim to be a history book. It claims to be a book about the heart. So we spend time with them and we allow the Holy Spirit to work through their hearts and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus to them. And that's where we're at. That's what we do. They become our frontline ministry. Now, maybe there's someone you're thinking about that about right now. And I want you just to think about them. Who can, you, who can you just preach the gospel to? Maybe someone that used to come here and doesn't anymore. Maybe someone that is no longer here. Maybe it's someone who's sitting next to you. Now, as I close, today was a freebie day for me. Pastor John said I could preach on anything. And I preached on this. And perhaps you're sitting here and you're going, that was a bummer, Brian. Like, what's going on? Why are, you t why are you teaching on this? Here's the thing. If we don't get this right, church, this family will be gone. It'll be an unhealthy family. I remember as a Marine, we'd go on formation runs. We'd all be in our formation and we'd do our run together and people would do a little cadence. And you always have someone who was leading it that wanted to show off. And so they would just sprint, and we're all like trying to keep up with them. And here's the thing. We'd always lose people because the person up front wasn't really paying attention to everyone else, and we didn't really, you know, everyone was just worried about themselves at the end of the day. If I'm going to make it through this run. And we lost people at the end of it. You show up, you start with 30, and end up with 10. And we're in this life together. We're in this journey together, and I don't want to lose any of us. We have to get this right. Let me pray. We ask God to bless this. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this time. These are hard words to listen to. They're easy 
to understand, but they're hard to do. And so I pray that you would be with us. I pray that we would rely on your Holy Spirit, that we would confront ourselves, confront our fears, and confront others in love, knowing that you are the author and perfecter of our faith and that you are well-pleased with us. May we live life from that foundation, your unbreakable, firm foundation, the love you have for us and you've shown us in Christ. So we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.